But tonight, uh, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 14 this night. And chapter 14 is a long chapter. It's 52 verses. And so we're just going to get right into it. Um, But before we do, I just want to say something about Jonathan, who is Saul, King Saul. King Saul was Israel's first king. Remember, Israel wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And so the Lord gave them what they desired. And I love the verse that says, the Lord gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. And oftentimes that happens when we are bent on getting our own way, wanting what we want, not really being concerned about God's will. And if we want it and we beg for it long enough, God will often, sometimes, I shouldn't say often, but he can and sometimes does give us what we want, what we ask for, if we want it long enough. And sometimes he does that, not so much to say, I agree with the decision, but sometimes our will can be such that I just continue knocking on the door. I keep knocking on the door. I keep begging in a sense. I really want this, Lord. I really want this. And he's like, you know, it's not good for you. That's why I haven't given it to you yet. But Lord, I want it. It's going to make me feel so much better. I'm going to feel so much better about myself. And he's like, do you really want it that bad? And sometimes the Lord says, okay. If you want it that bad, I'm going to allow you to have it. I'll see you in a little while because you know as well as I do when a child gets a shiny toy for Christmas that he's been wanting for a year and he sees it in the magazine and he finally gets it into his hands, within a few weeks it starts to lose its luster. The next thing you know, you're on to the next thing. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill that longing anymore. And such is the state of man. It's always been that way. But they wanted to be just like the other, uh, other nations who had a king. But let me suggest to you that last week's chapter and the chapter we're going to look at tonight, the, the real hero of the story is Jonathan. Jonathan, Saul's son. Jonathan was so different than his father. Remember, Saul was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel, a good-looking man. And that's really what God knew that that's what they wanted. They wanted the package. And you know what I mean by that. You know, we look at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, right? And so they wanted the package, and God gave them the package. If nothing else, to show them, prove to them that the package doesn't really matter. It's what's happening in here. And last week and tonight, we're going to see that Jonathan, Saul's son, was really the one who really had the faith, who really had the relationship with God, And he was really the the example. Saul was not the example. Would to God that they would have chose Jonathan to be king. He would have been a much better king than his father. And we're going to see tonight as Jonathan uh, takes on the Philistines and has a victory, and he led them. Actually, he went out against them in chapter 13, and he was the one who initiated this battle. And now tonight he's going to initiate another battle against the Philistines. He's going to be successful. And you're going to find Saul getting a little jealous. Saul was one of those men who was leader in really name only, but he really wasn't a good leader. Saul was suspicious. He was jealous. He was disobedient. He was unwilling to be tamed. And God was not pleased. And ultimately, God was going to replace him So let's look at chapter 14. 
Normally, I like to read a portion of it before we get started, but because this chapter is so long and there's so much to cover in this chapter, let's just get right into it. I would encourage you to read it in context tonight before you go to bed, and you can even review the service online or, you know, through our website. You can see the service back again as often as you want. You can also visit it on podcasts or Google playlists. Um, The services are there, the audio. You can review them at your leisure. But let's look at verse 1 here. It says, Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, and this is what he said, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And so here is Jonathan, this young man, the king's son, who actually is demonstrating more faith than his father. And I love his armor bearer, because his armor bearer seems to be like a man of kindred spirit with Jonathan, a man of faith just like Jonathan. And in fact, I think that's why David and Jonathan got along so well. I think that's one of the things that drew Jonathan to David and David to Jonathan. They were both strong, they were both men of faith, and they really believed in what God had said. And so Jonathan tells his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistines' garrison. So there's a grouping, a small uh, a garrison that is on the other side. Notice, but he did not tell Saul, his father. And again, Jonathan, the man of faith, unlike his father. And he probably didn't want to tell his father because Saul probably would have convinced him not to do so. Son, it's not a good idea. I've got a plan. This is not the right way to go about it. Don't do it. And yet we see Jonathan really led by faith, and it actually was right on target, right on target. And God blesses that kind of faith, the kind of faith that it goes against all odds. But notice that Jonathan believed in God, and we're going to see that later by a comment that he makes. But a person acting on faith is very rarely seen as someone who is making any sense, especially to the unregenerate man. A man that doesn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in him, seeing another man who is led by the Spirit, acting in faith, looks like total nonsense to them. And be... Don't be alarmed by that as you walk in your Christian faith and as you walk your walk of faith, that there's going to be times where God's going to call you to do something that's not going to make sense. In fact, if everything makes sense in your walk, there's probably something not quite right. It doesn't mean that God doesn't work with sense or with common sense. He certainly can and does, but there will be times where God will call you to do something that's very different from the methods of the world, and people say, you're losing your mind. That's not going to work. And see, it's not up to us to decide what works and what doesn't work. Our job is to be obedient, regardless of the outcome. Remember Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want you to go and speak to the children of Israel to warn them of the judgment to come. And here's why I'm going to judge them, because of their idolatry. Oh, and by the way, Jeremiah, when you talk to them, they're not going to listen to you. In fact, they're probably going to throw you in prison. They're not going to listen to you. Well, thanks, Lord. I'm really glad to do that for you. (laughs) But see, Jeremiah is a hero of the faith because he didn't have a lot of accolades. He didn't have the the evidence that anything that he did was really um, spectacular, but God did. See, it's not up to us what happens after the fact. What's important for us is to be obedient to God's word and to what he commands us to do, even if nobody else agrees, even if your parents, even if other Christians say you're losing your mind. You be led by the Lord, and you wait and see what happens. 
Leave the results up to him. Don't even be concerned about results because you get your eyes on the result, you're going to get discouraged and think, and then the devil will come, ah, the Lord didn't tell you to do that. You just made a fool of yourself in front of all your brothers and sisters and your whole family. An unbelieving man, you don't do it again. That's what the devil says. And God is saying, even if you make a mistake, blessed are you. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. If you pray and you feel like God is leading you to do something and it doesn't go against his revealed will and you get that still small voice, step out in faith and try it and see what happens. You've got nothing to lose. Maybe there will be a price in it. But let me tell you this, if you're genuine and you sincerely, sincerely pray and you step out in faith, God, even if it wasn't the, what you thought, even if it was a mistake of yours because you misled, you, you know, you thought it was him and it really wasn't, God is not going to punish you for that, especially if it doesn't go against his will. You understand what I'm saying, right? You know, if you, if, if, if you feel like, well, I really think I should, you know, I, I really think I should push that elderly person over because they'll grow in their faith. I think you can probably say it probably wasn't the Lord, right? So you understand, we, we, we don't violate the will of God to do something that God asks us to do. But, so Jonathan now is acting out in faith. And in fact, in Hebrews 11, that's the definition, right? Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for. You're hoping for it, and there's evidence, but you haven't obtained it yet. It kind of is like a, a contradiction, isn't it? Because normally when you have evidence, there's no reason for faith now because it's right before you. But when you believe and you understand that it's, you have this feeling in your heart that God is going to do this, but you, you don't have the evidence yet, that is what faith is. It's the substance of that. It's, it's the substance of things hoped for. And we're going to see Jonathan in verse 6. He's going to be... Um, declaring another wonderful act of faith. But notice in verse 2, so Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah, which is the, his hometown, under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. 600 men. And this is interesting because while Jonathan is focused on vanquishing the enemy, what is his father doing? He's sitting underneath the pomegranate tree when he should have been engaged. And I wonder why Jonathan didn't go up to his dad and say, hey, dad, let's go get him, because he knew that his father would probably talk him out of it. And I want you to underline this 600 men, because you'll see back in chapter 13, in verse 2, what did Saul start off with? It says, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash. Remember that, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gabeah of Benjamin. And then we're going to see in, in chapter 13, beginning in verse 15, now it says that um, then, Sam, uh, then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him. They were, now there's only about 600 of them. The reason being is they were so scared about this battle with the Philistines, how they looked to be overrun, and they were scared and fearful. He lost, you know, uh, what is it, 70%. Right? Something like that. He lost a lot of men. And God can do a lot with 600 men. We know that God can do a lot with 300 men. Remember in Judges chapter 7 when Gideon went against the Amalekites. God chose. He had to whittle down this 
army of 32,000 warriors, God had to whittle it down to 300. That's a 99%, less than 99, or actually 99% reduction of his army. Think of that. He said, with these, with these 300 men, you're going to win this battle against thousands of Midianites and Amalekites and people of the east. So verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And so we see this gentleman, Ahijah, from the line of Eli. Remember, Eli was the priest when Samuel was real young. And Samuel served, actually, under Eli. And remember, he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were corrupt men. But Phinehas had at least two children. The Bible tells us about Ichabod. His wife was dying when she gave birth to Ichabod. But it also says that he had another son called Ahitub. And Ahitub had a son, and his name was Ahijah. And this is the man that we're referring to tonight. And he was a priest. And notice that he had an ephod in his are wearing an ephod. And an ephod in those days, if you remember, the priests, they would have a, uh, a plate on the front, and there would be 12 stones on it. And each one of those stones represented the children of Israel. And sometimes when they wanted to divine God's will, they would have what they called Urim and Thummim. And they were usually a black stone and a white stone of the same kind. And they would put them inside this little pouch inside the ephod. And a question would be asked, like, am I going to get ice cream today, Lord? And then you'd reach in the pocket and you'd pull out a white stone that meant yes, which is the correct answer. And then, or you'd pull out a black stone and that meant no. And so we're going to see throughout the chapter Saul asking and um, inquiring at Urim and Thummim and some other methods by lots. <laughs> it's kind of an unfortunate thing when you're kind of relying upon chance in your direction from God. God is able to speak. He's able to speak to you. You don't need to pull out a rock or pull out two rocks. So verse 4, it says, Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. Bozes means slippery, and Sina means thorny. And if you've been to Israel, you understand the terrain over there is very rocky, and it can be thorny in places. It's a very dry place. Uh, Israel right now is, in many places, um, flowering like you would not believe. They sell fruit all over the world. You can go to Wegmans and buy uh, cherry tomatoes. You can buy all kinds of stuff, you know, a product of Israel. And um, they're very fruitful, as God has uh, foretold us in Ezekiel, that he would he'd make them a fruitful land in the time that we're in now. But notice the front, the front of one faced northward, these two rocks, opposite Michmash, and the other southward, opposite Gabeah. And then verse 6, it says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, and I love this phrase, because here again it just shows Jonathan's heart of faith. He says, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Notice, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. What an amazing declaration of faith. Amazing declaration. He says, it may be that the Lord will work. You notice he, he doesn't even, he's not even concerned about himself. Hey, it, it might work. 
Because we know that God is for us, and he can save by many or by few. And he is. We've seen it in their history of Israel. He could save by just a few. And God has never changed. He's never changed. He doesn't need a big army. The world says might makes right, and God says, I don't need might. I can do a lot with very little. In fact, it's better that way. Because then I get the glory, the Lord says. And no one's going to be talking about an army and how great their military was. And boy, they did this, and boy, they did that. God's going to say, no, they did it with just one guy with a slingshot. And I empowered him and, took, took, and did the job. Thanks. <laughs> God is good like that. But again, they were both men of faith. David, or I'm sorry, uh, Jonathan, his armor bearer, and certainly we're going to see David later on. So notice what it says in verse 7. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is within your heart. You know, he didn't even try to argue with Jonathan. You know, his armor bearer, he's the guy who's got to bear his armor, hence the name. And so he's carrying the armor and helping Jonathan put on his armor. And, you know, um, whether he put it on or not, I don't know. But he's his armor bearer. That's what he does. You know, he's not uh, a thorn in Jonathan's side. You know, when Jonathan says, you know, let's go do this. And, you know, he's not going to have this antagonist sitting next to him going, ah, I don't think it's a good idea. Don't do it. He was like, I'm with you. It reminds me of Ruth when she said to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. You know, same kind of spirit. Whatever's in your heart, I'll follow you. And that's the heart of the man. He says, go then, I am here with you according to your heart. What a wonderful man this armor bearer was. They were walking in step. I love that verse in Amos. This is a really wonderful verse. Amos 3, verse 3. Commit this one to memory. It says, can two walk together except they be agreed? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is no. You can't walk together with somebody unless they're agreed. How can two, 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 two you know, cattle, you know, they put them in the same yoke, about the same age, the same size, the same experience, and then they're equally yoked, and they can plow that field, and there's no problems. But you get an unequally yoked bull in there, and you got one that's experienced and one that's not, it's going to be a, a wrestling match until that young bull gets it. And see, that's what is important here. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? They really can't, and it's important. And it's wonderful when you have someone like that, that, you, that agrees with you, and they're of the same heart of faith as you are. Verse 8, it says, Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign for us. So really what Jonathan does here is he throws out a fleece. You ever heard of this word fleece? It's a piece of wool. It's, a, it's lambskin. With, with, you know, it's like when you shear the, the lamb or when you eat the lamb, you, you take the skin and you got the fleece, right? And that's really what this is. And where this comes from well, let me tell you what a fleece is first. A fleece is a course of action based on a predetermined condition. If this happens, then we'll do this, and then we'll know that God is in it. I wouldn't recommend using a fleece in your everyday life. God has used it in the past, certainly here and certainly with Gideon, but I wouldn't recommend it to, 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 for it to be something you do on a consistent basis by any means. 
I think it's interesting that Jonathan gave this fleece, and if it was the Lord's will, and they responded in a certain way, they would have to go up. They would have to exert more energy to accomplish the will of God or what they thought was the will of God based on the result of the fleece. You know, he didn't turn it the other way around and say, if it's the Lord and they say, we'll come down to you, then we'll know it's the Lord. No, he, he, put, he turned it around where they actually had, if it was the will of God, they would say this and then they would actually have to walk up to them, which is a disadvantage, isn't it? And so that's what Jonathan did. In fact, Gideon did the same thing. And this is where we get the word fleece from. You might want to write Judges chapter 6. Judges 6, verse 36 through 40 in the margin of your Bible. Judges 6, verse 36 through 40. Let me read just those passages to you because Gideon did the same thing. Remember, Gideon was, uh, he was a little fearful. God had to tell him a number of times to be strong and be, be courageous. O valiant man of God. <laughs> and certainly Gideon didn't see himself as that. And so Gideon, uh, because his faith wasn't co quite complete yet, he throws out a fleece, and this is where we get the word from. It says, So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. This is a place where they would thresh wheat, where they would do this with the grain, and then they would throw it up, and then the, the, cha the chaff would, would go away, and the, the heavier grains would land on the ground, and they would gather that up, and that's what they would use to make bread, etc. So they would, he would put this fleece, this wool, out there on the threshing floor, and if there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, that when he rose up early the next morning, you know what that's like in the, when you put something out uh, at night, and the dew hits it, it's, it's kind of wet and damp, isn't it? So it was. And when he arose early the next morning and he squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just one more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground around it, let it there be dew. And God said, God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground, which to me is the greater miracle, right? And God wanted to encourage this servant's faith. And God met him there. He didn't belittle him. You know, sometimes we think that whenever we fail or, or when our faith is weak, that God just doesn't want anything to do with us. That's not true. He wants to encourage you. What, what's the verse? A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he won't just extinguish and quench it. No, he wants to hold it up. He wants to fan that flame. He wants to make it better. He wants to make you better. He wants your faith to grow. He's not going to belittle you. He'll do whatever it takes to bolster your faith. Let me ask you, is your faith growing? Is your faith growing in your Christian walk with Jesus right now? Have you put yourself in a place where you've had to exercise faith? There are many ways in which one might do that, and that's between you and the Lord. But I want to encourage you to begin praying and, say, and step out in faith. Sometimes it's just speaking to somebody in a public place that you don't even know, telling them how much God loves them. Hey, you know, have you ever seen somebody in public that looked distressed? Why don't you just step out in faith and, say, and go up to them and say, you know what? The Lord asked me, the Lord want me to come over here and just pray for you. Can I pray for you just a quick second? I won't take much of your time. I won't, I won't spend a lot. Just, can I, is it okay if I pray with you? And you'd be, you'd be surprised what might happen. 
things like that, and many other things. But I wouldn't recommend doing a fleece, like I said, because uh, unless you need it and God is willing to um, encourage your faith by it, you know, that's up to you and the Lord. But that's what a fleece is. It's just a, it's a method to discern God's will by an action. You know, you put a condition on an action. So verse 11, it says, So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden. And obviously this is disdainful or disdaining to the children of Israel. And, and if you remember back in the, in the previous chapter in 13, uh, when Israel was being harassed by the Philistines, it says in verse 6, it says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, that the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And there's a lot of them in Israel, believe me. And so now they see these two young men coming out of the rocks, and they're like, oh, look, it's the little Hebrew guys coming out of their holes. Look at that. Oh, it's so cute. Is that a bunny rabbit? No, that's a, that's, is, is that a coney? No, that's a, that, oh, wait, that looks like two young men. And so then the men of the garrison called up to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you something. I bet. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. I love that. Notice that the Philistines, they saw uh, these two men as easy prey. Easy prey and a quick defeat for Jonathan and his armor bearer. They thought they could just take him over. But notice what Jonathan saw it as. Jonathan saw it as a victory of the Lord. And see, that's what faith is and that's what faith does in the heart of a man or a woman who is operating in faith. And here we see a collision of worldviews, in a sense, if you would. One was of the flesh, and the other was of the spirit. Certainly the Philistines were of the flesh, and Jonathan and his armor-bearer were led by the Spirit of God. And again, the worldview of those in the flesh is might makes right. The bigger the crowd, the better. The more money, the better. That is what the world sees. That's the worldview of the world. And oftentimes, people, groups, from different worldviews, they don't understand each other. And many times, they talk right past each other. You try to try to talk to an atheist or talk to an evolutionist as a, as a Christian. Sometimes you can be, you know, two different worldviews, two different worldviews are colliding. And sometimes you can talk right past each other and not really get to the root cause. This is why the world, they don't understand us Christians. They don't understand what we do and what we say, often. They don't understand why you do what you do. Who, who's controlling you? They don't understand why we don't fight. Remember Jesus when he stood before Pilate? Pilate was amazed that his, his followers weren't rising up. And what did Jesus say to Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And I can imagine Pilate's going, what? He's a man of the world. He doesn't understand. He's a Roman guy. Might makes right. Big armies, big weapons. Where's all your followers, Jesus? I thought you're the king of the Jews. I am, but my kingdom's not of this world. <laughs> okay, that's great. I think it's time for lunch. 
you know, and that's, that's Pilate. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, I love this. It says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And there's a difference between the man of flesh and the man of faith. Verse 13, it says, And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees. And as we read through this tonight, try to picture, you know, uh, you know, these things in your mind. I, I love doing that. Let your imagination go crazy when you read the Bible. Put yourself in the scene. Picture every movement. Picture it all. And you, you form in your, in your head what is happening. So Jonathan climbed up on his feet and his knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land. So if you th picture that in your mind, guys. I mean, if you're, if you're a guy, like, you know, if you're a man, you understand. I, I like to visualize things. I think of half an acre of land. Look in the back of your house and think of a half an acre of land and thinking of 20 Philistines at different places. And these two men went out after them and they killed them, all of them. And they were outnumbered by a factor of 10. <laughs> two of them, 20 of the Philistines. And notice in verse 15, back in our text, it says, And there was trembling in the camp as a result of this, in the field and among all the people, speaking of the Philistines, the garrison and the raiders also trembled, and notice, and the earthquake, so that it was a very great trembling, a very great trembling, but they, um, they were all trembling in the, in the camp, the Philistines. In Proverbs 28, it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And I think of Jonathan and his armor bearer like men of, like lions. They were bold and filled with faith. In Leviticus chapter 26, in verse 3, the Lord gives some conditional promises to Israel that really apply to what's happening here. Because remember, when Moses, before he uh, passed away from the scene and before Joshua took his place, as they were standing at the Jordan River before they crossed in the, into the Promised Land, you know, the Lord, uh, through Moses, was giving Israel promises, conditional promises. Let me read a few of them to you because they'll relate to what we're talking about. Leviticus 26 verse 3 says, God speaking to the Israelites, he says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then... Whenever you see if and then, that's a conditional statement. It means if I do this, then God will do this. It's a conditional statement. In fact, through Leviticus 26, you're going to see this conditional thing. So he says in verse 3, If you walk on my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then... And then if we go down to verse 7, it says, Then you will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Isn't God fulfilling that right here in this chapter? If you, and Jonathan was a faithful man. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, and Jonathan was one of those men, if you do that, you will chase your enemies, verse 7, and they shall fall by the sword before you. And then in verse 8, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. He echoes the same thing in Deuteronomy 28. Write that in the, in the margin of your Bible. Deuteronomy 28. And let me just read uh, a few uh, excerpts from that chapter. In verse 1 it says, Now it shall come to pass if, there it is again, notice those if-then statements. If you're a computer programmer, like uh, some of you, 
um, you understand an if-then statement. It's one of the first things you learn when you're doing a programming language. If the user enters this, then do this subroutine, whatever it may be. And, and that's what it is. But notice, it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. I like that. Do you like being overtaken by a blessing? It's like running down the street, and instead of being chased by a pit bull, you're being chased by blessings. I like that. That's a good thing. Can you imagine that 911 call? You're running down the street and you got your little air your AirPods in your ears and you're calling the police and you're running and they can tell you're out of breath. What are you doing? I'm running down you know, East Avenue. What are you running for? I'm being chased by blessings. Okay, that's really nice. We'll send the uh, paddy wagon for you. But notice God says, if you diligently do these things, then he says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 28, he says, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And then in verse 9 of the same chapter, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandment of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and and they shall be afraid of you. Isn't that exactly what's happening here today in, the, in this passage? They're trembling. They're afraid. And God, again, is being faithful to the promise he made hundreds of years prior. And he's, he's obeying. He's, he's coming true on that promise for Jonathan and his armor bearer. They were men of faith. They believed God, Right? God's promises of old were in effect. And then notice, all the earthquakes, so that it was a very great trembling. So we're talking about an earthquake here. And other times in the Bible, there was an earthquake, coincidentally, at the time when great faith was exercised. Look at those places where you find there was a great earthquake. You remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, after raising a lame man who was uh, bedridden, and they go into the temple after, after the day of Pentecost, they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto you. Rise and take up your bed and walk. He did. It created such a stir that the Pharisees and the, the, the religious leaders, they call the, Peter and John before them. And they threaten him. And they tell him not to speak in Jesus' name. And being let go, they went to their own companions and they reported to all the chief priests and the elders what they said to them. And so when they heard that, notice this group of prayer warriors that were around Peter and John. They raised their voice to God with one accord and they're praying and they're thanking, they're thanking God. And we won't have to go through the prayer here, but they, they really give glory to God. And what does it say at the end of verse 31 in Acts 4? And when they had prayed, notice the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit, Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. It seems to me that when God encounters faith like that, sometimes he responds in the natural with a quaking, an earthquake. And for some reason, the Middle East, especially Israel, it lies on a fault line. I don't know if you knew this, but right in the center, in right where the Jordan River, that's a fault line. <laughs> Two tectonic plates join in the center of that river. That's the fault line, is the Jordan River. And there's all kinds, uh, over the years, many, many um, earthquakes. 
That's why whenever we're there, when we go down to the rabbi's tunnel underneath the western wall, underneath the temple mount, all the time I'm down there, I'm thinking, not today, Lord. Because when you look, when you're several, several feet below ground, all you got is limestone all around you. You're just, I'm really liking this, but I'm looking at the end of the tunnel, you know. It says now, verse 16, back in our text, it says, Now the watchman of Saul and Gabeah of Benjamin. So Saul is watching this whole thing from Gabeah. He's looking down upon the battle from a distance. It says, Now the watchman of Saul and Gabeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, meaning the multitude of the Philistines, and they went here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the, call the roll and see who has gone out from us. And when they had called the roll, they went by name of who's here. Joe, are you here? Here. Joshua, are you here? Here. Jonathan? Jonathan? Jonathan's armor bearer? Crickets. Hmm. So they called Roe, and when they had called the Roe, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, the priest, Bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing here. Um, not really sure if this is really the ark, because at this time, the ark was actually in Kirjath-Jerim, and it was in the house of Abinadad, and it was about 10 miles west of Gabeah, where they were at. That's where the ark was. I doubt that they really went and got it, uh, because we're going to see that they reached their hand inside uh, of, of, of the ark, but it really wasn't the ark. What they believe, in, in fact, the, um, the Septuagint, anybody know what the Septuagint is? It's just uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. So there was a time when the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And when they did that, they translated this ephod instead of ark. And that makes more sense. It could be. It makes sense, as, we, as we'll see. Because no one was to put their hand inside the ark. And I doubt they're going to travel 10 miles to bring the ark back. And you'll see in just a minute. But I find it interesting that Jonathan... Unlike his father Saul, Jonathan didn't need some kind of ephod. He didn't need Urim and Thummim. He didn't need to touch anything holy. He didn't make, need to do anything. He just needed to obey. But yet Saul was kind of different in that way. Saul needed to have an aid, something to connect him with what God had said. And that really doesn't require a lot of faith. And again, there's nothing wrong with having a sacrifice before you go into battle. There's nothing wrong with inquiring to God, shall I go down to the Philistines? Like David, David did that. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jonathan was, he's like, you know what? I've heard enough. God told us back in Deuteronomy. Hmm, I can trust him. If I do this, and I believe my relationships are right with you, God, and I'm going to step out and, and, and vanquish these enemies because they've defied you. Isn't that what David said to the Philistines? You've defied the armies of the living God. It had nothing to do with Jonathan It says verse 19 in our text, it says, Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. And imagine that in your head. He's seeing in a distance, he's seeing the Philistines starting to scatter, and then the noise is starting to pick up, and he's getting kind of nervous, wondering what's going on. Notice what it says here, that while it happened, now it happened that while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, and here's our clue, that this was not the ark, but rather an ephod, withdraw your hand. Because the priest had his hand inside the ephod and he was about to pull out a stone or something. However they did it, 
He said, withdraw your hand. Their hand wasn't in the ark, I can tell you that. God would have smote them dead if they would have put their hand inside the ark. Even a Levite wasn't supposed to put his hand inside the ark. So, but notice Saul's impatience. He didn't even get a, a, an answer from God. He says, withdraw your hand. In other words, forget about God. Let's go do this. Forget about what, his, what he's going to say. Things are getting heightened. They're getting excited. We've we got to do something now. Forget what the will of God is. we just got to go, you know, do this. Impatience. Remember that God is never in a hurry. We often think that God's in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. We're in a hurry because we're confined by time. But God, believe me, if God really wants to do something in your life and you miss the first opportunity, if God really wants that and it's his will, it's going to come back again. Trust me. I know this. And if it's not his will, then it might not. And thank God for that. But before hearing from the Lord, he rushed into his own decision, not willing to wait on the, the, what God wanted. Be very careful. If you remember in, in the last chapter, in chapter 13 and verse 12, when he, while he was waiting for Samuel to show up, remember, he says, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. Was a, was a Benjamite supposed to offer a burnt offering or was it supposed to be a Levite? Only the Levites were supposed to do that. But Saul and his impetuousness and his impatience decided to do it himself because he was in a hurry. And God is not concerned about that. God could have given them deliverance even if Samuel didn't show up and, they were had, and the Philistines came upon them. God would be able to do it. See, we've got to trust God and not so much things. We've got to trust him. He's the one who made all things. Wouldn't it be better to trust him than any external thing that I've got, to, some kind of external right that I've got to do in order to be right with God, you know? You know, going through all the, you know, the, the, the beads and the Hail Marys and all the, you know, giving them of money because I, I sinned and it cost that much. I mean, they did that back in the Middle Ages. Certain sins in the Catholic Church had price tags attached to them. I've seen it. Oh, if you commit adultery, that's a big one. Well, if you tell a little white lie, you know, maybe five or ten bucks. But, you know, when you really commit the big sin, man, and when you're drunk or, you know, of course the priests have to pay then... But then, you know, you get my point. God cannot use a man who is governed by self-will. Self-will is a killer. It's something that I've got to learn, too. I've got to be governed by God, hopefully, and not myself. I don't, I don't want my own way. Whenever I get my own way, I haven't won anything. Most of the time, I lose. And you know, God likes to give good things to his children. He really does. When you really desire something that's a good thing, there's no good thing that he's going to withhold from you if it's not going to destroy you. I shared this before. It's like when my daughter was real young, you know, she said, Daddy, would the, would the Lord give me a, you know, a 400-pound chocolate bar if I prayed for it? And I said, I, I doubt it, honey. Oh, why not? He's a good God. Yeah, he is good, but he knows what you would do with that chocolate bar. You would eat it until you got sick, and then I would come in and help you. And then I would get sick. And then your mother, because she likes chocolate too, she would, would the whole family would be sick. So I don't think God would do that, honey. So, but if it's good, you know, and it's not going to hurt you and not going to destroy you, then he might do that. In Proverbs 26 and 29, it says, Do you see 
uh, actually in 26 and 29, it says, Do you see a wise man in his own eyes? Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And I have to ask a question. Are you stubborn and desire your own way? I know we've all been there. I don't desire to be stubborn, but I, I, at times I have been. And probably in the future I will be at some point because I'm not perfect. But hopefully I've learned a lot of lessons and I'm becoming less stubborn and less desiring my own way. Because I've truly learned, and maybe you have too, that God's way really is the best way. And it's peaceable and there's no issues with it. When God wants to bless you with something, he knows then he can, you can handle it. You're not going to worship it. You know, why would God bless you with something that's going to cause you to stumble? He just, he's not that way. Some people he could give something really big if he so chose because he knows their heart is not bent on it. But if you're lusting for something and it's all that you want in life, and it could be a person, young people, especially single people, you have to be careful of that. I remember a young lady here many years ago, she, her best friend got married and she was so jealous and she wanted to get married so bad. She wanted to get married so bad. She got married and it didn't last a year. Because she wasn't seeking the Lord. On the altar of her heart was a man. She got the man that she looked for. She looked for. Because he was a handsome guy. But he was horrible to her. So are you impatient? Are you not willing to wait? Remember, God is not concerned just about the end result. The, the process in between is just as important. In fact, oftentimes more important to get you to the place where you're going. He knows what he wants to do to get you here. And the ends don't justify the means. He's like, oh, this time from here where you're at now and the time I get you over there, all that time is like precious gold to me, God says. And that you're going to learn something really wonderful about me. You're going to learn something wonderful about you. And you're going to be able to share that with somebody else who needs to hear it. You're going to be able to comfort others with the comfort that I've comforted you with. And boy, isn't that wonderful. That's when ministry really happens. That's really exciting when that happens. But are you impatient? We know in Galatians 5, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That's patience. Pray for patience. And as you pray for patience, don't be surprised if you find yourself getting impatient. Otherwise, your patience wouldn't be tried, right? I'm learning this one. <laughs> I'm not there yet, but I'm learning patience. Verse 20, back in our text, Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. So now they're going after the Philistines, and there was a very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, these are Hebrew defectors who defected to the Philistines. Once they saw that the Philistines were now on the run, they went up with the, 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 the Jews into the camp from the surrounding country. They also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So this, they got them on the run, so everybody coming out of the woodwork and chasing them. And likewise, verse 22, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim where they had uh, heard, um, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. And verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. So Israel saved Israel, the Lord saved Israel that day and God used Jonathan mightily to initiate this battle. 
Again, not Saul. Saul was underneath a tree, probably on his cell phone, updating his Twitter page. Busy, you know. Putting a photo of him, you know, a selfie of him there by the tree and kind of taking pictures and, you know, applying a few filters and uploading it. And the son is out doing the job that he's supposed to be doing. And then in verse 24, here's where we find Saul starting to become unhinged. Actually, I think he became unhinged in chapter 13 when he offered that sacrifice, waiting for Samuel, when he shouldn't have offered the sacrifice. He should have waited. Yes, God brought him to the 11th hour, and Saul was impatient. God, and I believe Samuel was, I believe Samuel probably would have went a couple days earlier, and the Lord probably spoke to Samuel and said, Samuel, no, don't go there yet. Just wait. Just wait. I got to do something I've got to reveal something to Saul. And so he does. But notice this rash oath that Saul makes. Verse 24, it says, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath. So, you know, they, they're, they're going after the Philistines. They're, 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 you know, it's probably a very hot day. They're, they're beat. I mean, I mean, when I mean beat, they're, they're tired. They're completely wore out. And notice what Saul says. He puts the people under an oath and he says, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I take vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And so we see now, and again, this is not something that's directed by God, is it? Did God say that they should do this? No, this is something that he initiated. He initiates this oath and it was a, it was a poorly, it was very poor to do this. You don't tell men who are out in the battlefield, oh, by the way, you're not going to eat anything today. You need energy. You need protein. <laughs> You're going to be running and, and, and tossing around uh, uh, spears and swords. And here we start to see Saul unraveling. Jesus said in Matthew 12, uh, verse 34, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And here we see Saul trying to muster up something spiritual and appear devoted to God by making some kind of oath like, let's, hey, let's all fast now. No, this is not a good time to fast. God didn't say it. It'd be different if God, you know, spoke to the priest and spoke, to, you know, if he did it some other way. But Saul's just pulling this out of thin air. He's like, he's pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Let's fast until we vanquish our enemies. That sounds like a really bad idea. A really bad idea. It's been said that the spiritual conditions of our hearts are revealed not only by the actions we perform, but also by the words we speak. By the words we speak. In Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2, it encourages, do not be rash with your mouth like Saul. <laughs> like Saul is not in there, but do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Boy, that's a good um, admonishment for all of us. Instead of me coming and just throwing up on God all the things that I want, sometimes it's good to just get before him and just be quiet and be silent. You speak to me, Lord. Again, there's nothing wrong. We, we pray and that's good. But you know what I mean. Sometimes we have time and all we do is talk, 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 and we don't stop and listen and just let him work in us. He does things in wonderful ways, sometimes a little easier than what we might think. All we need to do is rest in his presence. 
But Saul now, he not only makes this rash oath, but we'll see him in the latter part of this chapter being willing to even put his own son to death after another rash oath that he makes. And then we're going to see him in chapter 15 next week, not obeying the Lord's clear direction. And that's at the point where God's like, I'm done with you. I can't, I can't steer you, Saul. You're, you're, you're a disobedient man. Someone better than you is going to take your place. Saul didn't know it, but it was going to be David. A young man out in the field, the youngest of seven, out in the field, Jesse's son, tending to the sheep. Nobody cared about him. God says, that's a man after my own heart. I like that. But this fast wasn't directed by God. It was foolish. Be careful in making oath. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 33, Again, you've heard it said that to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair black or white, but let your yes be yes or no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Don't make oaths. You don't need to make an oath. Jephthah, remember? Usually we make oaths when we're desperate. You know, when you're in a real pinch and you're like, God, I will do anything if you get me out of this problem. I'll do anything. I'll, I'll, I'll do this. In fact, God, I'm going to do this. If you get me out of this trouble, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, paint the church at Calvary Chapel of Rochester on the outside. With my own money, Lord. <laughs> and then the Lord delivers you, and you're like, ah, oh, it's getting kind of late. And off you go. Jephthah made an oath, an oath. Lord, if you give me the Ammonites, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'll offer as a burnt sacrifice. He's probably hoping for his Labrador retriever. <laughs> Don't think they had those back then. But can you imagine seeing, you know, uh, Benji come running out of the door, you know. Or Lassie running out to meet him. Wouldn't be so bad to offer that as a burnt sacrifice, but it's his only daughter comes out of the door. Back in our text in verse 25, it says, All the people of the land came to a forest. So here they are in this battle as they're chasing the Philistines. They come to a forest. There was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was, uh, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod with his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. And he put, it, put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. And then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Well, that sounds like a really great idea. What a great oath. You know, such a perfect timing. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Wow, those are words that could have got him uh, put to death, right? My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little bit of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now, would there not have been a, been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Wouldn't there have been a much better victory if we had fed ourselves? What my father said was dumb. That's what Jonathan is saying. Now, they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, so they drive them back. 
uh, westward from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people rushed on the spoil and, and took the sheep, the oxen, and the calves, the spoil, and they slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood, which they weren't supposed to do anyway, but they were so famished. You, you know what that's like when you're really hungry? Have you been like that? Maybe you've been a little hypoglycemic, and you're like, you're like seeing stars, and you're just, you'll consume anything. I mean, you'll take a, like a Snickers bar and just you know, stick it up your nose. I mean, you'll just inhale it. And you just eat the whole thing in like three seconds flat, you know, in two bites, it's gone, you know, and you just eat everything in sight and then you're, you start to come out of your fog. Does that ever happen to anybody? Raise your hand if that's happened to you. Yeah, okay, good. I'm glad to know. Yeah, that's happened to me. Of course, I didn't stick the, the, the bars up my nose, though. I just, uh, I put them in my ears, though. No, just kidding. So then... People, they rush on the spoil, and then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he, so he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And here Saul is being all high and mighty and, you know, uh, feeling really spiritual himself. And then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring here, bring me here, every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord thy God by eating with the blood. So every one of them, every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. So they're sitting around there getting all, getting their tummies nice and full. And then Saul built an altar there to the Lord. And this was the first altar that he had built. And by the way, it's his last. So what is he doing offering on the altar? He's not a priest. There's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Saul was one of these men like Timothy, like Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. He had a form of godliness, but he was denying the power of God. He wasn't really seeking the Lord. He, he had a form of godliness. He had a form of righteousness, but it really wasn't real in his life. And that's why he was such a, a not a very good leader, like David, like his own son, Jonathan. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night. So they just got done eating. They got, probably got their energy back. And now Saul says, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. And let us not leave, leave a man of them. And so Saul wanted to appear spiritual again, to be a leader, now a, a courageous warrior. And notice what they said. Do whatever seems good to you. The people said that. And then the priest said, um, hey, hang on a second, Saul. Let us draw near to the God. Let's draw near to God here. And again, was God steering Saul or was Saul guiding Saul? So the priest, thank God, stops him and says, Hey, shouldn't we seek the Lord first instead of just being rash again, Saul? Haven't you learned a lesson? And I can almost hear Saul under his breath, Oh, come on. We've got to do that religious thing again? Can't we just go? Can you see his impatience? I believe that was probably more accurate. So verse 37, Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? We don't know exactly how they were divining this answer because uh, probably weren't using Urim and Thummim or maybe the priests lost them. I don't really know what happened, but notice what interesting thing happens here. So he, the Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? A yes or no question. Will you deliver them into, my hand, into the hand of Israel? A yes or no question. 
But notice, but God did not answer him that day. Can you imagine how humiliating that must be for a king? He didn't answer them. In Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I'm continuing to be disobedient, how can I expect God to be hearing me when my life is filled with rebellion and sin? It doesn't mean that he can't, because I remember when I was in sin, I cried out to God and he saved my soul. But those are probably the, uh, um, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, doesn't matter. Let's go on. So, um, so Saul, because of his sin and his rebellion, God didn't answer him. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. So again, Saul trying to make something happen. You can, you can just feel his insecurity. Can you, can you feel it? Can you hear it? He just, he's trying to prove himself to God. He's trying to prove himself to the, to the army around him. He might be trying to save face because of how he's been humiliated so far. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. So he's already putting his son. He says, even if it's Jonathan, whatever this problem is, whoever sinned in the camp, even if it's my son, he's going to die. And that's exactly what it was. So he makes another rash vow here in this verse, 39. Whoever it is, even if it's my son, he's going to die. Well, that sounds great, Saul. Saul was very jealous of even his own son. And then he said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on another side. So now they're casting lots. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And so Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So basically what they did is they used lots and all of the children of Israel were on one side and Jonathan and Saul were on one side and whoever picked the lot and the one that was shortest or whatever, then it would mean that these guys would be set aside. And then he noticed what he does after that. And Saul said, cast lots, lots now between my son Jonathan and me. Let's find out if it's my sin or his sin. So Jonathan was taken. His lot was taken. And so now Jonathan is slated to be put to death. Even though Jonathan didn't do anything wrong, the Lord was exposing Saul's foolish behavior. We're going to see that because of his rash oath even to the extent of killing his own son. And notice what happens in verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die? I mean, can you imagine seeing this battle between a father and a son? I mean, Jonathan respected his father, but he's like, you're kidding me. You, you know, I didn't even hear the oath, and now because I did that, I'm going to die for that? I mean, do you realize what, how dumb that sounds? You're going to do that? I'm, I'm the one who did What were you, Dad? sitting under the tree, drinking iced tea, updating your Facebook page, and I'm out there chasing the Philistines, me and my armor bearer. Where are you? Where are you, Dad? I can just see the dad puffing up his chest. Go ahead. You know, you know, fathers and sons can sometimes get in the flesh. But Jonathan didn't do anything wrong. Saul did everything wrong. So then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said, I've only tasted a little bit of the honey. And Saul answered, God do so to God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. So Saul, even in his pride, he's so hung up on his oath and his commandments. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. 
unlike you, Saul. They didn't, he didn't, they didn't say that, but that's what's implied. And now Saul is jealous. He's jealous of his own son. And we're going to find that because David was made of the same stuff, he's going to hate David. He's going to be jealous of him. And he's going to hate it when Jonathan and David really become the best of friends. Boy, he hated that. He's like, now two men of faith on my hands, my own son and the one who's probably going to replace me. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he, he did not die. And then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. I mean, think about this. They're, they're about ready to finish the battle, right? And now this whole thing comes up where God exposes his sin. And think of how humiliating this must have been for, for Saul. To have everybody in the whole, the whole all of Israel saying, you're not going to lay a hand on him. But I'm the king. I'm the, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the king of the jungle. He starts to bang his chest and roar like a lion. No, you're not going to put a hand on him, Saul. He's the one who delivered us today. I mean, ultimately God did, but God used this man. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel, fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom. These are all enemies of Israel, against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. Whenever he, wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites, and he delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. We're going to see next week another of Saul's major blunders uh, next week when we look at the, uh, his battle against the Amalekites. And then in 49 verses uh, through 49 through the end, we're going to see just a, a postscript, if you will, of Saul's family, the royal family, if you will. And it says, The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jishu, Jishuai, and Melchishua. And the names of the, his two daughters were these, the names of the firstborn, Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal, or Michelle, however you want to say it. This is the woman that Saul gave to David, right, as a prize for killing Philistines who despised David in her heart when she saw him dancing before the Lord, remember? We're going to see that coming up. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. And wouldn't he? I mean, that would, that would make sense, right? Now, there's a lot in these, uh, in these chapters, uh, you know, or these verses, in verses 49 through 51 especially. There's some, uh, some translational issues there. Um, let me just give you uh, three verses or four verses to just check out as you read this because um, there's some uh, more information and in other verses that kind of uh, clarify some of these things. If you're reading it really carefully, you'll, you'll notice some discrepancies, but they're, they're uh, given to us in other areas of the Scripture. Uh, the first one is uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. You can look at 2 Samuel 21, verse 8. So 1 Samuel 9, really verses 1 and 2. 2 Samuel 21, verse 8. And then 1 Chronicles chapter 8, uh, 29 through 33. And then finally in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 39. And they just kind of give you some more background on those verses. We're not going to go on that tonight because uh, we don't have that much time. But I would encourage you to check that out. 
But we see, uh, again, we're going to see Saul uh, becoming more unhinged as time goes on. And remember, uh, Samuel had already told Saul, because of his disobedience, that God had ar is already looking at somebody else. And that was the writing on the wall for Saul. He should have really examined himself. And, you know, um, who knows what the Lord might have done. But you can never tell a man by the outward appearance, right? In fact, next week we're going to see that verse. It's very common. Next week's going to be a really wonderful chapter to look at because there's so much to learn there. And it's something that right now we can apply to our life because we tend to, we tend to size things up in the natural. We very rarely wait to see what's underneath. We never take the time because we're, we're Americans and we have to have it fast and quick without any questions. We don't care. We want what we want. We look at it. That's what I want. Hunt, kill, take home, right? That's, 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 that's typically the idea. There's no waiting for anything anymore. I would encourage you to be a person of patience. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon him. Honestly, I've had the, most, the greatest joy when I've had to wait. The greatest joy when I've had to wait for something. For God to prepare my heart to prepare me for whatever it is he's going to do. There's no replacing that, folks. There's nothing you can go through that's going to get you there any quicker. You must learn to be patient. You must, must learn to, call, to wait upon the Lord and trust him. Let's do that this week. Let's not be rash like Saul. Take things and matters into our own hands and just make it happen. Because I can. I've got the gift. I've got the talent. i got this. i got that. I can make it happen. I can make it happen. And God's going, well, you can make it happen if you want, but you're going to make a mess of it. And you're going to have to redo it all again. And you're going to hurt people in the process. Do you really want to do that? Is there anybody here that really wants to hurt somebody? Much, and hurt yourself. Hurt your own faith. Hurt your own walk. It's better to be wait, to wait and be patient. Patience, patience, patience. Long-suffering, isn't that a fruit of the Spirit? Long-suffering, patience. Wait, wait, wait. Let's stand together. You've been waiting long enough tonight, but you're used to it by now. Maybe. <laughs> Father, we just thank you for the, um, Lord, the examples that you've given to us in, in the scripture. Lord, so many lessons, Lord, that we see. And Lord, we're learning them along with Saul, Lord. Tonight, we're learning. Tonight, we're learning. I'm learning. I'm learning again, Lord, to, to trust you. And I pray that, God, you'd bless my brothers and sisters tonight, that you would fill them, that you would encourage them, that you'd strengthen their faith, Lord, that you'd give them every good thing from heaven. Lord, uh, surround them, Lord, with your blessings. May they chase them down the road, Lord, and, and, and just bless them, God. Bless their homes, their families, their kids, their spouses, Lord, their jobs, everything they put their hand to, according to your will, God. Have your way with us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.